chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, 1, 2, 3, 7. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding bowls, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, everyone. Fantastic passage, but what are we supposed to make of it? It's all just a little bit strange. A bit bizarre, isn't it? And it's, uh, well, quite bewildering at first sight, and it's quite tempting for us just to give up and walk away. Fortunately, that was not an option that I had before me. And I found, as I hope we will all find, that if we can look beyond this weirdness, we'll actually find that this passage is something of a goldmine. Hopefully, you realise that the star character, the lion or the lamb, is Jesus And as Sean and Will have both reminded us over the last couple of weeks, this whole book is really a revelation about Jesus. 
It's not primarily a guidebook to heaven or a blow-by-blow account of the last times. It's about Jesus. And that's particularly important for us to remember in a passage like this, which is full of quite obscure details. You see, we mustn't get bogged down in the details and let them obscure the basic thrust of what it's trying to show us about Jesus, and particularly in this passage, about Jesus' death. This is all about the lamb who was slain, about the cross. But it tells us about the cross in quite an unfamiliar way. Gone is that familiar scene of a brutal Roman cross in first century Palestine. And instead, we have a cosmic drama unfolding in heaven, involving all the weird imagery of horns and lambs and lions and scrolls and all that kind of stuff. Weird, but I think powerful. In fact, I think it is the very unfamiliarity of this passage that gives it, give it, gives it its punch, its impact. I used to think that I understood the cross. I thought, if you'll forgive the pun, that I had it nailed It's very simple, really. On the cross, Jesus died in my place so that I could be forgiven, set free, and brought into relationship with God. And that is true. It really is that simple. But it's also far more than that. At the risk of being sacrilegious, I think it's quite like the game of football. It's a game which in its basic thrust and rules is really very, very simple. I, like many people here today, uh, learned how to play football and have enjoyed it from a very, very young age. And yet at the same time, it's a game which is full of complexity, subtlety and technical details. I hesitate to use the word profound, but you get the message. It's something which is so simple a child can work it out and yet so complex that you can spend the rest of your life looking at it and not get bored. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) On an even greater scale, and hopefully everyone will agree with this one, the cross is something which is very, very simple. Even the smallest child can understand it. And yet at the same time, it is so profound that none of us in this life will ever fully appreciate its depths. And the thing that I like so much about this passage is that it gives us a new, or certainly a less familiar, angle on what the cross is all about. Usually, when I think of the cross, I don't know about you, but when I think of it, I tend to think of the cross from my perspective, from my viewpoint. I remember how Jesus died for my sins, in my place, so that I could be forgiven and I could be set free. As I've said, that's all true, and this passage doesn't deny any of it. But what it does is it, is it zooms out from me, from you, and it gives us a wide-angled perspective on the cross. If you like, a cosmic view, the significance of the cross for the world, for the whole of history. This is no longer just my story, your story. This is the story around which creation and history Revolve. So let's look at the story as it unfolds. I'm actually being given both chapters 4 and 5 to preach on this evening. 
And chapter 4 really sets the scene for the drama that we see unfolding in the chapter which was read to us. And the scene is the throne room of God. We read in verse 2 of chapter 4 that I was in the Spirit, this is John speaking, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, God. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. And a little while later, we read that from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And then throughout the chapter, we have some rather enigmatic creatures looking like a lion, an ox, a man and a flying eagle, covered in wings and eyes. And alongside them, 24 elders. And the creatures and the elders spend their whole time bowing down, praising and worshipping God. And probably the creatures are supposed to symbolize the the animal kingdom, God's um, power over the whole of the animal world, the created world. While the elders probably symbolically represent the people of God, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and then the 12 apostles of the New Testament come together to represent the whole people of God. And so we have this wonderful picture of God's throne room and God's power as he's worshipped by these extraordinary people and creatures. Even though it's a very unfamiliar scene for us, I think we get the basic message. This God is awesome. He's awesome. He's awesomely powerful. We see that in the obedience of the people. We see that in the opulence and magnificence of his throne room. And we see it in the lightning and thunder, which are symbols of his power over nature. But he's not just powerful. You see, he made it all in the first place. One of the songs that is sung to him in chapter 4 says this, in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things. He made everything. And it goes on to say, by your will they created and have their being. We still rely on God for our existence. Can you imagine something or someone more powerful than that? But the chapter is not just about his power. I think when we think of absolute power, we tend to feel uh, to think about tyrants, to think about corruption. We tend to have a pretty negative image in our democratic age of that kind of thing. But our God is no corrupted tyrant because he is a perfect and holy God. The creatures never stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What we've just been singing as well. Our God is not only all-powerful, but he is also perfectly good and holy. What an extraordinary vision then we have presented to us as we turn to our reading today in chapter 5. And yet, our reading today starts with a scene of despair. A scene of despair. We read this in verses 1 to 4. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But 
no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. I wept and wept. John is in despair because no one is worthy to open the scroll. Which, of course, poses the question, what on earth is the scroll? Obviously, it's quite important, and as we'll discover, the opening of the seals is the uh, theme of the next few chapters. But unfortunately, we're never told exactly what it is. And as you can probably guess, uh, scholars and Bible commentators have come up with all kinds of different ideas as to what it might be. Broadly speaking, though, there's two basic views. There are some people who think that the scroll symbolizes God's salvation and that the inability to open the scroll means that that salvation is still not available. They point to another scroll that's very important in the book of Revelation, the Lamb's Book of Life, in which the names of everyone who'll be saved at the last day are written. And they suggest that this scroll in chapter 5 is either the same or something very similar to that. But then there's another group of people who suggest that the scroll is actually a symbol of judgment, God's judgment on humanity. And our inability to open the scroll is a sign of the fact that we are totally unable to deal with or cope with the judgment that should be coming our way. You might think that those are two quite radically different interpretations, but actually it doesn't make a huge amount of difference to the thrust of the passage. It's the same basic idea. Whether we're stopped from being saved or whether we're still under judgment, the inability to open the scroll is a complete and utter disaster. It marks our separation and our distance from God. And it means that we are still under God's judgment. Hence why in verse 4, John is in despair. The outlook is very, very bleak. But of course, as we know, the despair is only temporary. Our hero, Jesus, is just round the corner, announced in the very next verse. And so it's very tempting for us to skip over the despair and run on to the good news. But I'd like us to dwell here for a moment or two, to allow the full force of the despair to hit us. Not because I'm a misery guts and I want you all to be depressed. In fact, quite the opposite. Because I believe that it is only when we appreciate the despair, when we realise how great the distance between us and God and how awful our situation really should be, that we can begin to appreciate how wonderful, how amazing, how brilliant it is that we've been rescued from that, that Jesus has saved us by his death and resurrection. And so I'd like us to stick with the weeping for a moment. But even the weeping here might be a bit of a surprise to us. You see, I don't know about you, but normally when I think about the greatness and the glory of God, like we've been looking at in chapter 4, it's a source of comfort, of hope, and of strength to me. Not the very different emotions that we see here of despair and maybe even fear. And the reason that we get this shift in tone from chapter 4 to chapter 5, um, to, from one of praise to one of despair, 
is because there's a subtle shift in focus at the start of chapter 5. Whereas before we were looking at God alone, now we're looking at God and the rest of us as well. We're looking at the scroll and our worthiness. And suddenly that makes us see ourselves in the light of God, in the light of his greatness and his glory, and supremely in the light of his holiness. And for me, that's a very uncomfortable thing to do. It makes me all too aware of my own inadequacies, of my own limitations, and particularly of my own sin and wrongdoing. In order to provide an illustration, I uh, popped into Monsoon in town this afternoon. I hasten to add, before you get the wrong idea, only for the purposes of providing an illustration. And what I bought was, was this. For those of you at the back who can't see it, it's a necklace with some rather large, chunky um, blobs of plastic. (laughs) It's a really delightful piece of jewellery. Even though I'm not a connoisseur of plastic jewellery, well, it seems perfectly nice to me. But imagine now that my budget for this sermon was rather larger, and I'd also managed to buy a diamond necklace. And if I put the diamond necklace and the plastic necklace together, the the flawless, perfect diamonds would suddenly make the plastic necklace look rather less nice. In fact, we'd see it for what it really is, cheap, tacky, nasty, and only really good for throwing away. And I think it's a little bit like that with us and God. If we just look at ourselves, at the people around us, we may think that we're, well, we're really okay, thanks very much. But the minute we bring God, the awesome God of Revelation chapter 4, alongside us, suddenly we begin to realize that actually we are cheap, tacky, and nasty. It's a pretty uncomfortable thought as we realize what the passage tells us that we are not worthy. And we realise that that comes with all the implications of separation and judgement from God. And so, we weep. We weep with John. But then, everything changes. The scene changes with the entry of the hero. He's heralded in verse 5. We read, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Our despair is short-lived. A triumphant hero is announced, and he's everything that we might expect of a hero. He is a lion, magnificent, kingly beast. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Two titles which were used in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the great and glorious king who was to come and who Jesus is. And then to go with those great kingly titles, we see that he has triumphed and that he can open the scrolls. And we think, fantastic, the hero has arrived. But then we get a bit of a surprise. You see, we're expecting an all-conquering hero But what we see, what we get, 
is rather different. In verse 6, we see a lamb. A lamb looking as if it had been slain. And in contrast to the lion, the lamb is one of the weakest and most vulnerable of all God's creatures. And this isn't just any lamb. This is a lamb who has been slain. This lamb is a victim, a sacrifice. He's the complete opposite of what we expected. We looked for an all-conquering, almighty hero, and we got a weak and vulnerable victim. And so we seem to have a tension, a contradiction, between what we expect, what we hear, and what we see, and what we get. And so we're left wondering, is he the lion, or is he the lamb? But the answer is, he's both. The hero, Jesus, is both the lion and the lamb, both strong and weak, hero and victim. I think we see this if we look a little bit closer at the lamb. You probably noticed And if you're like me, you were baffled by the reference to seven horns and seven eyes, which the lamb possesses. Now, seven is almost certainly there to symbolize perfection. It was a number of perfection, symbolic of completeness. So it probably doesn't mean that that the Holy Spirit has seven different facets, but rather that the Holy Spirit is complete, for instance. Because we're told that the eyes, the seven eyes, are a symbol of the spirit. And so this suggests that the lamb is endowed with God's spirit. He is, in fact, divine. And then we see the seven horns, and they're probably a symbol of God's perfect strength. And so somehow, this lamb, this vulnerable victim, also possesses God's power and God's spirit. And so we're left in a situation where we cannot separate the strength from the weakness. The two of them go together. And I think that's a very important point. You see, it's not that Jesus temporarily gives up his strength, although he does. It's not that he triumphs in spite of his weakness, although he does. It's not that the cross is a defeat, a failure, which is then reversed at the resurrection, when victory comes. No, the lion is triumphant precisely because he is the lamb. Jesus is victorious, not in spite of his weakness, but precisely because of it. If you look down at verse 9, we see that the elders and creatures are worshipping the lamb and singing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Well, why is he worthy? Well, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. The triumph of the Lamb comes at his death. His blood purchased our freedom. He died in our place, taking our sin, our wrongdoing on himself. And in so doing, he also triumphed. He defeated the devil's schemes to destroy us. He reversed the power of sin over us. He broke the power of death itself and he made a mockery of all pride, pretension and brute strength. By winning the greatest victory in history through sacrifice and death, he showed us 
that contrary to all our expectations, might, power, and force are not ultimately successful, but are overturned by an even greater power, that of love and self-giving. It's extraordinarily difficult to get our heads around, and so I've turned to one of the greatest works, in my opinion, of theology ever written. It's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's by C.S. Lewis. For those of you who don't know the story, one of the key characters, Edmund, turns out to be a traitor. He betrays his brother and his sisters and the whole of Narnia, and he runs off and, and gets in league with the White Witch, who represents the devil. As a result of this, he should be punished. And justice, or the deep magic, as it's called in, uh, in the book, justice demands that he die a traitor's death. But the lion, Aslan, who represents Jesus, steps in and willingly takes upon himself the death that Edmund deserves. He dies in Edmund's place like Jesus dies in our place. But then he comes back to life. And of course, this baffles most of the characters. And I think there's a very revealing uh, passage in which he explains what's going on to one of the girls called Susan. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table on which I was killed would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now, well, now I feel my strength coming back. I think that C.S. Lewis has grasped a very powerful point. It is not that death is a temporary weakness, although, of course, it is. But that when Jesus goes as the willing victim, allows himself to be killed in our place, there is something more powerful, more profound, than the greatest might or force in the world. Jesus has redeemed us and won the victory through weakness and suffering. But what exactly has he achieved So far, we've seen the scene in heaven. We felt the despair that the scroll can't be opened. And we've seen the hero, the lamb, who died to save us. Now it's time to consider what the lamb has won. The full epic scope of this drama. As I said before, it's not just us who are affected. And so in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5, we see that the whole of heaven is on edge waiting to see who will be able to open the scroll. And then, once the Lamb appears, the whole of heaven praises him and rejoices at the good news. This is a drama of cosmic significance. It's also a universal message. We look back at the song that I drew your attention to a moment ago in verse 9. They sing, you were slain and with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe, language, people, nation. That is everyone. 
This is a drama in which everyone is invited to participate. Everyone is offered the salvation that Jesus has won on the cross. And ultimately, the rest of Revelation tells us that when we get to heaven, we will be surrounded by a multitude of people from all nations on the earth, praising and worshipping God. This is a message for the whole earth. But it's not just that we're saved from God's judgment. There's more to it than that. The song in verse 10 continues... You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. We're freed to worship and serve God for the rest of eternity. And as part of that service and worship, we're also freed to reign. If you remember, in Genesis 1 and 2, God gave authority, dominion over the earth to Adam and Eve. But of course... They and we have fouled it up since then. The earth has been ruined by our, our perversions. In our environmentally conscious age, we're all too aware of the problems that the world faces. But when we are restored to being the people that we are supposed to be, we will also be restored to our reign over the earth. And when we are restored to our reign over the earth, that will enable the whole of creation to be what it was intended to be. And we see that particularly in chapter 5, verse 13. We read, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And the message of that verse is not that the fish will suddenly be able to speak when we get to heaven, but that once we are redeemed and we take our place ruling over the earth under God, the whole of creation will be reorientated and refocused to the praise and glory of God. And so the story of the Lamb, of the cross, is a drama that will ultimately transform all of creation. Obviously, much of that remains in the future. It's not like that at the moment. But this great drama shows us that it will happen and that it will be achieved through Jesus' death, winning our redemption. For me, that just about blows my mind. It shatters the limits of my puny understanding of the cross as I realize that the cross isn't just about me, my sin, my forgiveness. But it's about the whole world, the whole of history, the whole of creation. But of course, that's not to deny that it is about me and about you as well. In fact, you and I are caught up in the very centre of it all. Caught up in the middle of this great cosmic drama. Because what is it that Jesus did? Well, if we go back to verse 9... He was slain, and with his blood he purchased men and women for God. With his blood he purchased men and women, people like you, people like me. Jesus died for my sins, for your sins, in our place, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be freed, 
so that we may be able to come before God, the God that we saw in chapter 4, with freedom and with confidence. And we might become the people that God always intended for us to be. I was right about that all along. It is that simple. But I just hadn't realized how amazing it was as well. So how should we respond? Well, it's not a passage with lots of practical points to add to our list. It is a revelation designed to transform our understanding and give us a fresh realization of what Jesus' death means for us. And I believe that if that happens, that transformation will naturally affect the way that we behave. A little bit like somebody who is in love, my brother, for instance, who's just got engaged, wants to please the person that they're in love with. Not because they're told they have to, but because they want to, because their attitudes and desires have been transformed. And I think that we should meditate on these passages Allow them to transform our understanding and through that to transform how we live. But perhaps most of all, I think we should do what the elders do at the very end of our passage. They fell down and worshipped. So why don't we do a little bit of that just now?